Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, evening, everyone. Thank you, Ian. Um, and many thanks to the, the college for uh, the invitation, which um, I meant to take up last year and was unable to, but uh, I'm very glad to have made it, uh, to have made it back this year. Um, and it's serendipity, because it's exactly at the point at which I'm beginning my work uh, on tourist guides and their representations of science and medicine uh, across the United Kingdom. Uh, and I suppose of all the qualifications that you listed, having been an undergraduate here and brought up in Edinburgh is the best one for today's talk. Because uh, I know the places of which I speak, which is not always the case in working in different areas of the UK. The downside of giving such a talk here is that so do you. Uh, so I hope um, that I know I'm going to be speaking to a knowledgeable group, uh, both in terms of their history, uh, but also, of course, you're going to know the very buildings, the very streets around which my talk is organised. Uh, so let's, let's see how that goes. Now, I want to begin by asking and, and also answering an initial and important question. Why look at medicine in tourist guides? Now, I stress medicine here, and in a moment I'm going to stress tourist guides uh, and speak about them. We know a great deal about medicine's relationship to place. Uh, we know about the interiors of hospitals and their architectures. We know about visiting dignitaries to well-regarded hospitals, including those here in Edinburgh. We know about the role of the official hospital visitor or the inspector of health. But we know little about the general public's encounters with places of medicine uh, and how they engaged with medicine in particular locations. Uh, so, for example, Jonathan Reinhardt, professor at Birmingham and Graham Mooney, uh, in a, a book in 2009, uh, made a study of hospital visiting uh, in which they gave numerous examples of hospital visitors, the tourists not among them. And I think outsiders, like tourists, um, are really interesting figures uh, in thinking about uh, visiting places within cities. And Keir Waddington, who's well known for his work on um, Victorian London hospitals, and well known as a historian of medical institutions, um, tells us also that while by the close of the 19th century hospitals attracted ever more guests, uh, and I quote Keir here, he says, we've not actually... Um, interrogated all of these guests. And we need, as he says, to stimulate more research on the full range of visitors uh, to medical sites. And not just focus on those visiting dignitaries who are well recorded uh, in, public, uh, in the public media and in hospital records, who visit hospitals you know, as part of their own kind of grand tours. So lots of public visitors to 19th century hospitals but not a consideration yet of the focus today of my talk, the tourist. Now, we also know from the historian of medicine, Roy Porter, that we should be looking at medicine not only from the top down, but from the bottom up, from the perspective, say, of patients and workers, as well as the medical professional and those at the top of institutional hierarchies. And I think a lot of that work has been done. But still, quite a lot of it tends to work from the inside outwards. That is, the starting point for thinking about hospitals is often the hospital itself. Who came to it? We find out through looking at its own records and the ways in which it presents a face to the public. 
And I would argue, and I'm going to start some of this work today, that we should also try to consider hospital spaces from the outside in and begin elsewhere. Um, you know, what happens, for example, say, to the visitor to the hospital who's only popping in for a moment and is really mostly concerned about where next they're going to have lunch? What do they experience when they visit the hospital in the 19th century? The outsider, who's not captured by official records in any way at all, and who in the official records, say, of the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, doesn't appear. How do we access them, uh, and what do we understand about medicine, and, for example, its role in civic society, when we do look at them? So to ask this is to recognise, I think, that medicine is sometimes put on show for other people, that medical spaces have power, and that that power is often symbolic, um, and it can mean things other than that, than the, the way that medicine defines them themselves, ways other than we might think. Medicine isn't used to being put on show, and especially not in the 19th century. It was much more often, of course, the reverse case. Medicine did the showing through anatomical exhibits of unusual cases and pathological specimens. Much more commonly, we think of medicine as displaying objects, rather than itself being an object for display to others. What if we did make medicine our object of study, its places and people? Um, what if um, we tried to do what John Pickstone called the wider political ecology of medicine? What if we tried to study that? What might we learn of medicine and what might we learn of the city itself? Now, why is it that travel guides are helpful in such inquiries? It's common to consider travel guides, and there's a few um, examples on the screen for you there. Um, there are covers, at least. It's common to consider travel guides as essentially bound files of information. They provide facts about the accepted sites that a tourist would wish to see. They give lists of hotels, of restaurants, of shops. They give trains, uh, times and timetables. Indeed, they're little more, really, than timetables to city spaces. And indeed, um, if you were using Bradshaw's Railway Guide, as Michael Portillo has done, then, of course, you would actually be reading timetables to different spaces. But closer study of guides like those on your screen and many others show us that travel guidebooks are much more than this. They don't just appear. They have authors and these authors write in interesting ways and come to the travel writing with specific intentions. They might have other careers, for example, in science or in the theatre. Travel guides are also written to specific places such as Edinburgh by numerous different publishers. These publishing houses offer different kinds of visions of the city. They structure them differently. They construct them differently. The sites that they choose, the sites that they choose to ignore, are different. They say different things about people and about place. So each guide, each travel guidebook, sometimes called handbooks, provide us with different versions and different versions of the place under consideration. So Edinburgh, for example, is not simply described to us in tourist guides, it is in part created by that tourist guide 
Tourist guides provide for us, as Nicola Watson said, an imaginary national geography that has an influence over how we then view places thereafter. Tourist guides, then, are one of the most influential forms of knowledge transmission about specific places. And the many more tourist guides there are, the more that they say and the greater influence they often have over how places are represented, both to its own inhabitants, also to wider national contexts, and also internationally. So tourist guides do have a certain power. Now, travel guidebook publishers and writers and readers aren't unaware of this. And in the 19th century, when travel guides uh, came to prominence, uh, readers and writers were very much aware of this. Uh, John Murray III, whose publishing house was a pioneer of travel guides, and the archive um, of whose um, publishing house is kept here in Edinburgh at the National Library of Scotland, um, wrote that his travel guidebooks, his handbooks, should show us all that is best worth seeing, but only what best merits attention. That raises questions for us, I think. Who makes the choice over what's best worth seeing? What is that best? What grounds do we include certain things and exclude others? Well, for John Murray, that answer was easy. It was whatever he thought best merited attention. Travel guidebooks should not, he said, give readers carte blanche to view and look as they wanted, but rather should show them what to look for. Travel guidebooks are a kind of disciplining force. They limit the reader to particular kinds of tourist experience, and they also tell you how to think about them as well. Guidebooks determine your interpretation of a city space and its broader identity. And this was recognised too by writers and readers uh, of travel guidebooks. Let me give you one example of readers responding to guidebooks. Uh, Although you can't read the writing, you can see this um, beautiful letter written to John Murray in 1846. It comes from a group of eight residents of Genoa writing about Murray's new handbook for northern Italy. They write with much surprise that their highly respected colleague, Dr H.B. Bennett, resident here for six years past, has been omitted from the recent guidebook. Yeah, eight of them (laughs) get together to write. This, they say, gives so much injury to the individual that they simply had to write in the hope of correcting the wrong. The seriousness with which they take the reputational damage to Dr Bennett I think is really interesting. And it speaks to the fact that they recognised the great influence that travel guides exerted or were believed to exert, which might not be the same thing, but, but can feel that way. Uh, the end of that story is that the Handbook for Northern Italy of 1848 lists a Dr. H.B. Bennett. Uh, now, Murray is often regarded as the first commercial publisher of travel guides, as we now know them. Um, His first was published in 1836, and there was thereafter, and especially following the Great Exhibition in London in 1851, an explosion of the number of travel guides being produced for all parts of Britain and for all sorts of occasions. In the second half of the 19th century, guidebooks to Edinburgh were produced by at least 30 publishers at any one time, as well as by individual hotels. Many of the hotels in Edinburgh produced their own guidebooks. Schools and even individual shops. There was a very well-known guide by a gown maker. 
Guides were produced to celebrate all sorts of occasions, especially international exhibitions, and also to lament the passing of famous persons, such as the Albert Memorial Guide to Edinburgh, produced in the 1860s. And what I'm going to do is focus attention on a group of them, uh, half a dozen or so, uh, different travel guides to Edinburgh, all of which were published between 1860 and 1890, so a good range of 30 years' worth of work. Guides cover some of the same places. They differ in how they do so. Um, some guides provide lists. Others are organised around areas. But most of the guides produce itineraries or walks which you would follow round parts of the city. Um, often extremely long walks, actually. The 19th century walker uh, was an impressive figure. Uh, I'm going to concentrate on what many of the guides call the south side of town. This is a small section of it. Uh, and you can see here's South Bridge uh, leading up to the, uh, the university, the original Royal Infirmary, uh, the bookshop, which I always think of as James Thin, uh, that's no longer there on the corner, Infirmary Street, Drummond Street, uh, and it extends outwards from there uh, and round other parts um, of the south side of the city. But it incorporates Museum, Chamber Street, uh, the Royal College of Surgeons, etc. And I'm going to cover a few different themes. Uh, I'm going to think about ideas of status, charity and benevolence, the city and its images of health, uh, the movement between the historical and the modern, and I'm going to conclude by looking at uh, how medicine becomes very much um, seen as culture. Before that, uh, let me use uh, a different example of an encounter with medicine just to highlight some of the contrasts. Uh, this um, bit of dense text in front of you is the, are the opening lines to a very long poem uh, in a, a number of sections or stanzas titled In Hospital. It's written in 1875. The morning mists still haunt the stony street. The northern summer air is shrill and cold. And lo, the hospital, grey, quiet, old. Where life and death like friendly chafferers meet through the loud spaciousness and drafty gloom, a small, strange child, O oh, aged yet so young, her little arm besplinted and beslung, precedes me gravely to the waiting room. I limp behind, my confidence all gone. The grey-haired soldier porter waves me on, and on I crawl, and still my spirits fail. Tragic meanness seems so to environ these corridors and stairs of stone and iron, cold, naked, clean, half workhouse and half jail. I don't need to say this is a dark portrait of a hospital. Uh, but some of you will already know or have deduced that this is a poem written about Edinburgh's Royal Infirmary, uh, when it was still on Infirmary Street, uh, by the poet William Henley, friend and colleague of Robert Louis Stevenson, who was treated there for tuberculosis in the 1870s. Henley's representation of the hospital works very clearly here through affect. That is, it marks the hospital with the signs of the poet's own emotional state, his foreboding, his fear, his concern. For tourists, walking the city streets with a copy, for example, of the popular Forbes and Wilson's Guide to Edinburgh, to encounter the Royal Infirmary, was to do something very different from this. And yet around the same period. Tourists were guided down Infirmary Street, 
and then stopped by the itinerary in front of a set of impressive gates. These are the gates that are now in front of the Geography Building at the bottom of Infirmary Street. They've been moved, but they still exist. The tourist would be stopped in front of a grand set of gates and invited to share in the guide's astonishment and delight at the wonderful architecture of the Royal Infirmary. This hospital, they were told, was an example of the practical results of the unrivaled school of medicine to be found in the city. It was, the guide guide said, a great acquisition to the students of medicine who walk the hospitals under the guidance and tuition of our best professors. Henley's tale of Gothic imprisonment uh, within the confines of the grey, quiet and old infirmary becomes, in the travel guide, a story of the wonder of medical achievement. To be seen in the sculpted stone of the infirmary building itself, as well as in the history of Edinburgh's great medical school, and finally, once again, in the collegial and serious relationship between learned professor and eager student. The past, present and future merged together in celebration of the great medical city. Forbes and Wilson's comments on the infirmary also attest to the first of the themes that are evident across a range of travel guides in the second half of the 19th century, uh, and that is the theme of the status of the city. Medicine is employed by travel guide writers to present Edinburgh as a city that has wider national and international preeminence. Edinburgh's status as a city of distinction comes partly from its external appearance. As MacLeod's tourist guide asserts, Edinburgh is a show city. I'll quote, while in Glasgow, everyone races around as though they're desperate to make their fortune. In Edinburgh, it's considered to be the correct thing to walk along in such a calm, dignified way as if you'd already made your fortune (laughs) and had an eternity to spend it in. (laughs) Now, this theatre of splendour of Edinburgh is extended to many of the city's medical buildings which are recruited by travel guides as further evidence of Edinburgh's magnificence. So the tourist's picturesque guide of 1873, for example, uh, describes the Royal College of Surgeons as altogether a beautiful building and a great ornament to the street. Other institutions, such as Donaldson's Hospital, which we would recognise as a school, of course, but which maintains the medieval use of the word hospital as um, a place offering charitable refuge, are often also drawn upon to provide a sense of Edinburgh's external grandeur. So in Oliver and Boyd's Guide to Edinburgh from 1860, um, as well as elsewhere, Donaldson's is often described as the finest modern edifice in Scotland. Now the aim of such description is to present the tourist with a city that doesn't just have buildings, it has architecture. And that sense of design by Adam and Playfair, also by hospital architect David Bryce, who I'll return to, uh, suggests the stature of a city requiring architecture and design. Medical buildings become part of the broader project of persuading the visitor that Edinburgh is both significant, but also that it understands and curates for itself that significance. That final sense of the status as something recognised and preserved is particularly the province of medical Edinburgh. 
Benji's Guide, another written in 1870, uh, writes in its Southside Walk that the Edinburgh University has been greatly indebted to the fame of its professors, especially in the surgical and medical arts, for the success it has attained. And similarly, the Balmoral Guide, produced by the hotel of that name, claims that Edinburgh, without a suggestion of patriotic bias, may be said to be the first medical school in Europe, Paris not accepted. Uh, patriotism aside, the Balmoral's Guide aim first and foremost is to attract visitors um, yes, to the Balmoral Hotel, obviously, but also to Edinburgh. And the premier status of Edinburgh's medicine is mobilised to enhance the status of the city and, in turn, the status of the hotel. What we find travel guides doing here is putting into circulation an idea originally formed within the institutions and structures of medicine, which has um, audiences also within broader intellectual communities, universities, learned societies, um, of Edinburgh's importance and centrality as a medical city. Travel guides disseminate that idea much more widely, seeing in it an opportunity to make it resonate in new contexts. And it's not, it's not easy to give a sense of the status of a city uh, through inviting a tourist to look at something. Status isn't something that can be readily visualised. It's not easy to see. But through medicine... Edinburgh's tourist guides were able to do that, to imagine its status through showing medical buildings and talking about medical prestige, so that the architecture of the Royal Infirmary or the professors teaching within the School of Medicine all contribute um, to the importance of Edinburgh. My second category is another that can't be seen very easily either, but which has more obvious effects. It's the notion of charity. Hospitals have always been, of course, associated with charity. The idea of selfless giving was at the heart of the originating idea of the medieval hospital. And, of course, prior to the National Health Service, it formed a large part of hospital finance. Um, I suppose, indeed, that if you think about the connection between, between say, Peter Pan and Great Ormond Street Hospital, uh, we can see the importance ongoing of charitable giving uh, to medicine. In Edinburgh Travel Guides... Medical institutions exemplify a slightly different sense of charity, or perhaps a more local sense of charity, and that is the benevolence of the people of Edinburgh themselves. Across the classes, and by turn, this says something about the charitable nature of Scotland and the Scots. Elizabeth Grierson, writing a travel guide at the early 20th century, looking back to the 19th century history that she knows best and had lived through, notes of the buildings of the Royal Infirmary, that um, Scotsmen were poor in those days, but they built a Royal Infirmary. And in order to build it, they gave something more than money. Landowners gave stones from their quarries, and farmers carted the stones. Timber merchants supplied the wood, and joiners fitted it into place. Men who had nothing else to give gave their labour. And the walls were built by masons, who gave a day's work once a week or once a fortnight for this purpose. Now here's a story for Grierson of the benevolence that crosses all class boundaries and to which all Scots contribute. The Royal Infirmary that's being built becomes a signifier of national sympathy with the sick, national sympathy with the needy. And Edinburgh, the kind of city where benevolence of this kind becomes focused and active, entrepreneurial perhaps. Across numerous travel guides to Edinburgh, the hospital becomes a site for acts of generosity 
And this begins to build a picture of a charitable city with benevolent citizens. So it's entirely common, for example, uh, for travel guides to cite the importance of the founders of the great hospitals, again, I'm still here talking about schools, uh, at times, such as Jingling Geordie, George Herriot, who founded George Herriot's school, as Oliver and Boyd's of 1860 note. Most often, it's the Royal Infirmary that takes on the mantle of symbolising Edinburgh's charity. The Tourist Picturesque Guide, published in 1873, uh, takes the tourist on a tour into the central receiving hall of the infirmary buildings and invites them to stop in front of a statue of George III. What follows in the guide's text is, is this. On the east side of the statue of George III are the words, I was naked and ye clothed me, and on the west side I was sick and ye visited me. Tourists are then guided to the wall beside the statue where a mounted table remembers George Drummond, provost of the city, to whom this country is indebted, I'm still quoting, for all the benefits which it derives from the Royal Infirmary. And you can see there's Drummond and also behind him um, Edinburgh's important buildings which he helped, of course, to fund and build. In this tour and others that were similar, travel guides are manipulating the tourists to see medical charity as indicative of a wider Edinburgh sensibility, one that can be seen also in the civic culture of the city with George Drummond, the Lord Provost, at its heart, but that also has a wider influence upon the nation as a whole, represented by the statue of the king stood there in the infirmary's entrance hall. So the infirmary becomes itself an exhibit, showing to the tourist its role as representative of the charitable character of Edinburgh's people and their benevolence. Such charity had an impact on the city in other ways, and in particular, an impact on its health. Uh, It may seem banal, I suppose, to suggest that Edinburgh medicine might say something about health, and understandably it's bound to, but travel guides, interestingly, twist very regular idea and employ medical and other scientific buildings to provide us with a vision of Edinburgh as a new and healthy city. And again, the Royal Infirmary is at the heart of this. So, the new Royal Infirmary plays a central role. From the mid-1870s onwards, tourist guides always manoeuvre their tourist reader to the top of Middle Meadow Walk, so as to show them the buildings of the new Royal Infirmary. Um, I've obviously, this image that you see on the screen here, obviously taken from the bottom of Middle Meadow Walk, from, uh, from the south side, um, but it's just a great image. Benji's guide, one of the most prominent of the travel guides to Edinburgh at the time, uh, excitedly told its tourist readers that the new infirmary would embody all the latest improvements in hospital construction. The building was designed by the Scottish architect David Bryce, and as MacDonald's tourist guide goes on, and here's a classic bit of tourist guide writing filled with statistics and so on, The infirmary, occupying an area of 11.5 acres, is on the pavilion system, now generally adopted in new hospitals, and is in the old Scots baronial style, and cost about £380,000 to build. It's constructed so as to secure the freest circulation of air around and within all its parts. Now, health here isn't about what happens in the hospital. It's about, between, say, the medical staff and patients, as you might expect, but is instead focused on the organisation of space. Grounded in contemporary medical understandings of the relationship between disease and fresh air, 
The McDonald's Guide assumes that the tourist recognises the relationship between the circulation of air and ideas of improved health. The tourist isn't invited to think about medical treatment at all, but rather is asked to contemplate the urban space through the site of medicine. Now, this is true elsewhere around Edinburgh's south side too. The tourist picturesque guide, on its way to look at the Royal Infirmary, made its tourists pause at the western end of Chamber Street, just in the corner of George IV Bridge. There, the tourists were asked to look along Chamber Street, which was at that point being rebuilt. They, would, they said that this new street will, by its width, give good air and good frontage alike to the museum and to the north side of the university, besides removing a mass of old buildings, squalid and unsightly, to be replaced by well-constructed and healthy inhabitations. These moments illuminate, I think, the influence of medical knowledge across the city of Edinburgh, rather than situating it only uh, within its medical spaces. Health, Travel Guides tells us, radiates outwards from Edinburgh's medical establishments into the urban city itself. And city spaces begin to reflect that. They also begin to celebrate it too, so that the museum itself, the Museum of Science and Art, as it then was on Chambers Street, not only has an entire floor dedicated to construction, but a large area of that which included sanitary appliances used in hospitals and other buildings. Now, as Black's Guide points out, urban health here becomes the subject of civic pride to the extent that these medical pieces of equipment are exhibited back to the public as a kind of medical science and a sign of urban, um, of urban modernity and health. The children's hospital was often recognised as well-ventilated and provided with bathrooms, while Chalmers' hospital was erected with all the modern appliances. These technologies suggest, of course, health and modernity, and they imply that Edinburgh's a city of the future. But while that was certainly what the aim of the travel guides was, they were also trying to give us a sense of Edinburgh as a city with history. Now, history is often one of the, the key features of cities depicted to tourists. That goes without saying. Connoting rich heritage, longevity, lasting significance, that being the aim, um, I think, for tourist guides most often. In Edinburgh Travel Guides, medicine and medical institutions support the performance of the city as one imbued with historical meaning, and one a meaning that contributed to the creation of modern Britain. Medicine's regarded... Firstly, as a continuing a tradition of enlightenment, viewed, of course, by the guides as very particular to Scotland, uh, and also, of course, to Edinburgh in particular. Edinburgh Medicine, argues one guidebook, still affords a home to centres from which science, knowledge and healing radiate to the far ends of the earth. More significantly, though, medical buildings help to build an image of Edinburgh that continues, I think, even today, its identity as the Athens of the North. I imagine that's a phrase many of you know. I imagine that's a phrase many of you have used, probably. In the second half of the 19th century, Edinburgh um, was often called a modern Athens. And this idea had begun in the early years of the century. It was widely believed to have been confirmed in a public exhibition uh, held by Hugh Williams in 1822, where he traced incredible similarities between the two cities in terms of their geography and their architecture. He said, if only Edinburgh's disgrace had been on top of the castle rock, 
Edinburgh would be just like Athens, and that's, that would be its version of the Acropolis, uh, he said in the exhibition. But ever since that exhibition, this idea of Edinburgh as a modern Athens took hold. Uh, it said, of course, much more about the city than just its geography and architecture. It suggested that Edinburgh was at the heart of a European intellectual world, that it was a driving force of civilization. Now, medical institutions not only had the history that attested to that kind of city identity, but many of them were also built in classical traditions. Travel guidebooks often drew upon that to point out Edinburgh's association with Athens to give a sense of it as a modern Athens. So Benji's guide talked about the Royal College of Surgeons as a handsome Greek edifice, which housed a number of collections both extensive and valuable. And Black's guide uh, saw the Royal College uh, as exemplary of Edinburgh's status as a modern Athens. The portico and pediment, supported by six fluted ionic columns, are much admired for their classic elegance. And before Ian leaps to his feet and chases me out of the room, um, this was also, of course, the case in other buildings associated with the medical. For example, here, where guidebooks often, and in itineraries that took tourists down here into Queen Street, would speak about this particular college as another depicting that sense of modern Athens, and especially, of course, in its grand hall, um, which must only be a minute from here, um, uh, which was a great example of that kind of neoclassical architecture, uh, uh, and including the, the, the friezes, uh, reminiscent of the Acropolis itself. Identifying medicine in Edinburgh as contributing to its identity as a modern Athens also changes medicine, especially in the second half of the 19th century, where there was an emerging view, of course, that medicine was necessarily scientific rather than associated with craft or with arts. Medicine in Edinburgh, therefore, was becoming, through its association with classical Athens, a city of cultural significance. Culture was something that travel guides to Edinburgh took very seriously, often framing their entire perspective on the city with the idea of it as a cultural centre that set it apart from other urban places in Britain. The Royal Hotel Guide, for example, began its introduction by, to Edinburgh by, for visiting tourists by saying, Edinburgh's less a place of manufacturing activity than the majority of modern cities. And the impression of repose it creates suggests ideas of culture rather than of rough-visaged, rough-handed industrial life. Key to that culture, they all say, is the medical faculty, which, according to many guides, has more than European fame and shows us that there are, and I'm quoting again, there are few cities which offer equal advantages for stimulating the intellect, educating the taste and enlarging the heart. Culture, therefore, defined through medicine um, as cultivated, tasteful, and also building one's emotion, emotional intelligence, we probably call that now. That is, it's doing cultural work as well as medical work. MacLeod's guide connected the two for its readers in a walk through Princess Street Gardens. Within the railings that fence these gardens, says the guide, are to be seen the statues of two great and distinguished men in different walks of life. One in bronze of Sir James Simpson, the eminent accoucheur in sitting posture, and the other in marble of Alan Ramsay, the poet. My thanks to my parents for going out on a cold day and taking these pictures for me. Uh, although the guide draws attention to the different disciplines of the poet and the doctor, it's together that they are presented to the tourist 
Now, those of you who know Prince Street Gardens, is these are not next to each other in the gardens. You can't take one photograph of these two. They're far apart. And it's the tourist guide that slams them together for us. And in doing that, they invite a comparative understanding of Edinburgh as a city of intellectual culture that incorporates the artistic and the scientific equally. This was also often the case in the most common places where you find great men and women together, the graveyard. Black's Guide, for example, took its tourists around Greyfriars Churchyard, as did many travel guides, where it pointed out that some of the most notable Scotsmen, Alan Ramsay the poet and the physician and chemist Joseph Black, are buried here. Medicine's appearance here in the cemetery is a long way from where we began with the tourists invited to marvel at the Royal Infirmary or the university's professors. The distance should illuminate for us the range of ways in which tourist guides represented, employed and recirculated medical spaces, figures and histories, and shows us also that medicine takes on multiple meanings, meanings related to what might be called its core identity as a healing profession, but also attesting to the identity of the city of Edinburgh itself, and also more widely national and international contexts that are associated with that. And I want to work towards my conclusion now by looking very briefly at two final examples of medicine's reimagining in travel guides, this time as tourist entertainments. Now, travel guides to Edinburgh show us a number of clearly medical spaces and activities, but they include several where medicine just becomes entertainment. The first is the, the part, this first one, partly entertainment, partly educational. Um, emerges from um, Robert Knox, the Edinburgh anatomist, who, having, brought a whale, having bought a whale from fishermen at Dunbar in 1829, uh, first used it for himself and his students before mounting it uh, in the museum, passing it on to the Edinburgh City Council who mounted it in the museum. Interestingly, tourist guides always talk about this and always speak about it as medicine's connection into wider culture and its public benevolence. What they don't talk about, of course, is Knox's involvement, and in most guides this is very recent, Knox's involvement with Burke and Hare. Uh, strangely, that's left out. The case, of course, was notorious, wasn't it? Leading even to the creation of the satirical street ballad that I'd love best, that runs Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, Knox the boy who buys the beef. Now, neither Benji's guide, which I've quoted from, nor any other tourist guide, the exception of one written by Robert Louis Stevenson, talks about Knox's infamy. This is further indication, I think, that tourist guides are particularly interested in promoting Edinburgh as a particular kind of city, a city of cultured refinements, not a city of sensational crime. What is now one of the key ways in which, of course, tourism is sold to Edinburgh, Burke and Hare, um, was not something that Victorian travel guides wanted to dwell upon. And that also tells us, I think, of the shifting perspective of tourism. Medical-based entertainments, thoroughgoing entertainments, were available elsewhere in Edinburgh too. And this is my final example. Among the most interesting and attractive places of amusement in Edinburgh claimed the Middlemas Guide in 1871, was the Royal Gymnasium. Here, just off Royal Crescent, now called Scotland Yard, I think, still called Scotland Yard. Um, you'll all know this, just the Iyer Crescent, Royal Crescent, there we are, just off Dundas Street. Um, 
The, opened in 1863, the Royal Patent Gymnasium offered a range of large-scale pieces of equipment that required physical exertion. There was, as the guide describes, a rotary boat on a pond 471 feet in circumference, seated for 60 rowers. There was also a giant velocipede that moved up and down when pedalled by 100 participants. Now these and other similar gymnasium contraptions were for the purpose of affording healthful and exhilarating outdoor recreation to great numbers at once. Promoted as a site of health, the gymnasium is little more than a fairground where you pay for the privilege of moving the rides for yourself. It's rather like self-service in Tesco nowadays. This may seem to be at the further outreaches of what might be defined as medical, but the presentation of the gymnasium clearly as a place of health, even um, if it is thinly disguised as entertainment, is interesting. And by contrast, other areas that might now be seen as particularly attractive to visitors and tourists to Edinburgh, for example, the pathology collection of the Royal College of Surgeons, was noted as hugely important but not conducive to the pleasures of ordinary sightseers. One way to read the gymnasium, I think, is at the inevitable end point of medicine's encounters with tourism and tourists, where the line between medicine and sightseeing is blurred into indistinction. I think it'd be more accurate to think of it as at one end of a continuum of medicine's relationship with tourism in Victorian Edinburgh. It, along with all the other examples I've given today, reveal medicine not only to be enormously varied, but capacious enough, malleable enough even, to be employed for different reasons in different contexts and to take on different identities. But rather than conclude that medicine was manipulated, I think that tourist guides show us how powerful a force medicine was in Victorian Edinburgh and the amazing uses to which it can be put. Medical institutions, medical men, medical activity, medical history are all bound into the city's character and play a vital role in enabling writers of guidebooks to imagine Edinburgh as a city for other people. Historians of medical education like to argue that without Edinburgh, there wouldn't be any modern medicine. To summarise my argument simply is to reverse that, to say that without medicine, there wouldn't have been a modern Edinburgh. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you. <laughs>